You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. It seems we all love a good story about a house. From Bob Vila and this old house back in the 80s on PBS, to House Hunters and House Hunters International, to Trading Spaces, to Love It or List It, to Curb Appeal, the list goes on and on and on. We love thinking about our homes, about imagining renovations, creating that dream house, fixing up the perfect place to call home. And perhaps that's why the beginning of our story sounds so familiar and we can identify with it. We can imagine living at a place where all is well, the lawn is freshly mowed, the dishes put away, and we can sit out on the perfect back deck, drinking our favorite summer beverage and living the good life. We know what that feels like. And for David in our passage today, life is pretty good. He has a newly constructed house in a city he calls his own, and his house was made of stone, and it was opulently lined on the inside with cedar paneling. And that little detail of cedar wood is a clue for us that this is a stately dwelling befitting a king. Cedar would have been a very expensive import from nearby Lebanon. So he has a cedar wood house. And David is suddenly in, and there's been a break in the conflict with the Philistines, but he no longer sleeps in the field with the sheep, nor is he on the run, nor is he away in battle. David has a roof over his head, an impressive one at that, and he can truly say, life is good. Yet something is amiss. David frets. He looks around at his palace with its top-tier construction, and he can't help but being painfully aware of the far too modest dwelling place of the sacred ark of God. A tent, it seems, or as our translation puts it, within curtains. Being a good king, perhaps with a wee bit of guilt at the extravagance of his own dwelling place, David begins planning his next grand construction project. He will build a house for the ark. He will build a proper house. It will be a cathedral suited to hold the dwelling place of God. Now, his motivation is not revealed, although we can see that there might be multiple reasons that lie behind his new project. First of all, it's a good political move. It will solidify the stature of his city even further. And it's a good economic move, too, because it'll bring even more people to Jerusalem to see this brand new shiny temple. And then there's that very human desire to build monuments. 
we like to ground our deepest held beliefs in stone to somehow make our faith tangible. And David is settled in, and as he sees it, it's time for God to settle in too. So he shares his vision with Nathan, the prophet who makes his first appearance in our story here with this encounter. And the prophet readily agrees, as leaders tend to do when big donors start whipping out their checkbooks and promising state-of-the-art building projects. I mean, he gives his prophetic blessing on these plans. So far, so good. Until later that night, as the prophet is falling asleep, he receives a word from the Lord to put a hold on laying that foundation. There will be no house built for God in Jerusalem, at least not yet. And it's a funny dialogue, and unfortunately in the English translation, we miss some of the play on words that are there in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word, bayet, appears 15 times in chapter 7, and it has multiple meanings. So it's a little bit of an Abbott and Costello, who's on first base kind of thing going on here in Hebrew. Bayet can refer to a house, to a dwelling, to a palace, to a temple, or, as we will see later on in the story, to a dynasty. I'll build you a house, David has said. And God responds, no, I'll build you a house. And finally, we see that this is when a house is no longer a house or a palace. But it's a dynasty to last generations and beyond. So God, God's word to Nathan pushes back on David's schemes. First, God asked, is it you who would build me a house to live in? Who do you think you are? And then moves rather indignantly to say, have I ever asked anyone to build me a house? God has done quite nicely with this movable sanctuary space, not being tied down to any one location or confined by the trappings of a stone edifice. I have dwelled in no house, God goes on to say, suggesting that God might actually enjoy this nomadic life a bit that the tent provides. It's a mobility that has served the people well. Here we see God reacting to David's offer with the understanding that this is an attempt to domesticate God's presence to control God's comings and goings, to kind of put a stamp of David on God. So what God does is flip the tables on David, retelling the story of how they got to this moment with God as the central actor and not David. I brought up the Israelites out of Egypt, God says. I myself took you from the pasture. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut down your enemies. So slow down, big fella. Your plans are not my plans. Which again, I think, is a most human tendency to imagine that our desires are what God wants to God says, I have been there in times of trouble. I have been there every step of the way. I have been there in clouds and in fire. And I will set aside a place for my people, 
for Israel, and I will plant them, and they shall abide there and no longer quake. I think it's there that we see a key difference between David's proposal and God's. David makes his plans to build a house for God with no mention of the people at all. There's no understanding of how this might affect their lives or change their future. There's only David's narrow vision, his comparison of his house and God's house. The people don't play any part. But God's vision spreads far beyond the walls of David's new fancy digs, and God's intentions cannot be fulfilled inside four walls of stone. It's the fate of the people, of God's people, of God's beloved, which compels God towards a grander story than David can imagine. In effect, God is claiming freedom to choose a future outside of David's dreams and ours as well. So when is a house not a house, the test texts ask us when it's a dynasty a house of David which will last throughout the ages and it's here the word of the Lord to Nathan takes a profound turn the Lord says when your days are full and you lie with your fathers I will raise up your seed after you who will issue from your loins and I will make his kingship unshaken he it is who will build a house for my name and I will make the throne of his kingship unshaken forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. It will not be David who sets the foundation of a new temple in Jerusalem, but it will be his son Solomon who will finish the building project. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann argues that this particular passage is central Write in, quote, I judge this oracle with its unconditional promise to David to be the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament, end quote. It's key to Jewish theology and identity, and from the early origins of Christianity, the passage has been reused to shape much of Christian theology as well. For the narrative in Samuel, this word of the Lord given to Nathan reflects the move of the Hebrew people from what had been a tribal identity to a state or an in empire identity. And you can almost imagine that this particular part of the story could have been written in the days of Solomon, looking back at the beginnings of the monarchy of David, because we can kind of see a little ideology poking through in the telling of this story, justifying power structures, power structures that are invested in the success of the monarchy and the rule of King Solomon. In effect, saying, why are we doing what we're doing? Because God has blessed us forever. And that is where the text poses much danger for us. For it holds within it a hope for the future and the real temptation to employ these stories as propaganda for the benefit of those who already hold power. So I suggest we approach this crucial text carefully, 
not claiming it for ourselves, but gently holding it, listening to the echoes of its reach throughout the ages and indeed to our day as well. Perhaps at its core, what we can do is take from this story a call for humbleness, for an awareness of how limited our vision and our dreams can be, how parochial our understandings of faith and spirituality often are. Who are we, after all, to contain God? Who are we to define the ways in which God can act in our world? Who are we to say who's in and who's not, who's beloved and who's left outside? That image of God's house from this passage would become a central one within Christianity. In Jesus' farewell discourses in the Gospel of John, we find him speaking of that very thing, of abiding with God and God abiding with us. And in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, we hear Jesus respond to a question from Judas saying, those who love me will keep my word and my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. The Hebrew word bayet, which gives such richness to the story in Samuel, is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, with the word oikos. And oikos can mean house, it can mean dwelling or household, and it's the root word that we get economy or economics from. And in our reading from Ephesians, Christ himself is imagined as the cornerstone which brings together both Gentiles and Jewish believers, building up okidome, a dwelling place for God. Early Christians, you see, found freedom in this story from the early days of David's monarchy because God, they thought, was still doing a new thing. Just as God once was with David and with Solomon after him, now God abides with the people, not in a tent, not in the temple, but among us, refusing to be boxed in by any barriers of human construction. It's what one author calls the transcultural household that is based on communion in Christ. This oikos of God, The church built with Christ as its cornerstone is constructed not for itself, but for the good of God's entire household whose throne is heaven and earth but a footstool. Just as God sought to plant the people of Israel so that they would abide and they would not be shaken, we too are called to abide with God, to bring shalom and well-being to God's dwelling place on earth. So how do we do that? What does the shalom of God, this household of God, look like? Like David, I think we have our own ideas what God's realm is, and we tend to privilege our experiences of church, of worship, of ministries, of outreach, And we tend to say yes to things that sound like what we've done before, partly because they're familiar and partly because it can be so hard for us to imagine something new. 
David understands houses. He experiences safety and security in his own home, and he transfers his own experience onto God, imagining that God desires that same definition of safety. But through Nathan, God expresses something radically different, an expansive understanding of what home is, one that, yes, can be experienced inside a sacred tent or a consecrated sanctuary, but can never be contained inside a constructed space. God's house continues, stretching through time and space, through story and song, passed down from generation to generation. We understand ministry. We think we know what church is supposed to look like. We know what it looks like to share good news, to bring charity and support to those who are hungry or hurting. But God's idea of the church pushes the boundaries out beyond our familiar practices. In God's realm, practicing shalom is what we do here in this sanctuary, in this holy space. It's what we do as we share and support the work of Gateway House. It's what we do when we provide food for kids in school, when we collect health care essentials for MSU students in need. Yes, all of those are part of living in God's way. But God's at work beyond God is working for peace in our neighborhoods, on our street, in our county, and beyond. Right now, as we sit here, God's Spirit is outside this place too, busy building community. God's at work right now to bring wholeness in the lives of our coworkers in the grocery clerk who greets us each week, with the families that we will see playing at the park. You see, God's home is in the world. Just as the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the spirit is abiding here with us as well. And it's a grand design that God has, one beyond our grasp and yet closer to us than we can imagine. Now, it may seem a most peculiar prayer to offer, but as I close, I suggest that we might pray something like this. God, take our best laid plans and tell us no. For we trust you've got something even more marvelous in store for us ahead. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.